Hey everyone, this is Beth. And I'm Jeff. And this is your Enneagram Coach, the podcast. And it's our mission to help you and others to see themselves with astonishing clarity so that we can all break free from self-condemnation, fear, and shame by knowing and experiencing the unconditional love, forgiveness, and freedom in Christ. Now keep in mind, we are also on YouTube. So if you would love to see our beautiful faces, head over to our YouTube channel at Your Enneagram Coach. We'd love for you to check us out there. I don't think I've ever made an appeal to people to go to YouTube (laughs) to see my beautiful face. (laughs) Well, they can now. (laughs) uh, There was, we do have this one script, like sometimes we refer to people being sixes as their sixiness. Yes. And one time I did say, when I think about my sexiness, yes. that was uh, uh, pretty audacious. That was pretty, <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. Well, thanks sure. everybody for joining us. So this is going to be the first in a series of episodes where we're going to be talking about productivity, but from an Enneagram perspective. And on this particular episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking with John Acuff about his recent release, Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. Now, before you start thinking that overthinking is only assigned to a type or two, particularly sixes, um, let me just help you understand it applies to everyone. So let me begin with just a summary from the book. And, and this is fantastic. Overthinking isn't a personality trait. It's the sneakiest form of fear. It steals time, creativity, and goals. It's the most expensive, least productive thing companies invest in without even knowing it. And it's an epidemic. So in this book, John offers a proven plan to change overthinking from a super problem into a superpower. And if you want to tap into the surprising power of overthinking and give your dreams more time and creativity, learn how to DJ the soundtracks that define you. If you can worry, you can wonder. If you can doubt, you can dominate. If you can spin, you can soar. Jeff is a, or John is a, sorry about that. Yeah, it's not Jeff. Jeff's not anything that I'm about to describe. Speaking yourself in the third person. I just take on other people's accomplishments. I feel better. What number is is that? That is so eight. That's a classic eight move. Yeah, and three. Well, John, let's be honest. I mean, you did say borrow from other people. So I I can just borrow your accomplishment. I'm I'm John Acuff. I can write this book today. I can <laughs> so, John is a New York Times best-selling author of seven books and an Inc. magazine top 100 leadership speaker. He lives outside of Nashville, Tennessee, with his wife and two daughters. John, so grateful and welcome to the podcast. Uh, my heart's actually really happy be, uh, to be with you because you've actually been a voice for me over the past several years. Mm-hmm in our entrepreneurial journey. So we are so thrilled to be talking with you today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. We connected, I think, two or three years ago the first time via my brother. We've got a million mutual friends. So yeah, it's been true. really fun to have a front row seat watching you guys build what you build and help so many people. So I can't wait to talk today. Yeah. And I think we used to live just a hop and a skip from him, right? That's right. A few but, neighborhoods over. But and, now we're yeah. about 20 minutes, but... Yep. But 20 minutes in Nashville is a long way. In Atlanta, (laughs) people will be like, I have a pretty good commute. It's only 50 minutes each way. Right. That's right. In Nashville, they're like, oh, it was 11 minutes. It was so hard. (laughs) That is so true. We have a different scale of driving. So you guys live a long way away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so our our hope today is to focus our time on the main theme of the book, uh, our personal soundtracks and how we can turn them from unhealthy to healthy patterns. But as we do here, like we do everything else at Your Enneagram Coach, we're going to apply some of these principles uh, that John has identified to each of the Enneagram types. And so uh, if, if it's okay for me to ask, and it's not too uncomfortable for you, John, what's your Enneagram number? So I'm, I'm going to give you an either or because I've had people call me both. Okay. I identify like test-wise as a seven, but then I feel like most of my life is three. So okay. I had our mutual friend, Dave Barnes, I, we yep. were talking one day and he said, you're either a three or you're the most goal-driven seven I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> and so I, I would say I'm one of those two. Um, a lot of times people go, oh, you're seven, you're fun, you're, you're spot, you know, you like to, you know, laugh a lot, but like, I'm very achievement based. I'm very achievement oriented. So for me, it's either one of those two, but every test I've ever taken has leaned heavily on seven. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, we could go there. Is there a subtype of seven that relates with three? Well, I mean, threes and sevens actually have quite a bit in common. They're both go-getters. They're both, um, 
<clears throat> forward thinking, um, wanting to accomplish. But the biggest thing is for a three, so this will be kind of, uh, and you have to remember, we use all nine types to varying degrees. Sure. And especially if you get into what's called the tri-type, three and seven could be in your tri-type. The question is, which one is your main one? So the biggest difference between threes and sevens is if you aren't able to be successful in something or achieve a goal, for the three, that is like their core fear, to fail, to be incompetent, to not measure up, to to not be admired by their accomplishment. Now, a seven, on the other hand, if they don't succeed at something, to them, there's just a new possibility. They're just able no, to I spin don't it. Feel, I don't feel that way at second. No, like the three. <laughs> The three, like, no, no way, dude. I would never be like, ah, turn a frown upside down. That that That, failure is just a new way to learn about myself. Like, no. Well, the next time you talk talk to Dave, just even ask him that question. Like, hey, like, if you don't succeed at something or something falls through, like, do you just kind of, like, think of it as a new opportunity or spin it into a new? Wasn't it a seven and eight where we were talking that Mm -hmm. failure is not even a word? It's not even a concept. Yeah, it's not even a concept. It's just, it's a new opportunity. (laughs) No, I don't, I've never felt that one second of my entire 46 years. Because for the three, the core fear of the three is failure, is to not being successful, is to losing the admiration of others. Um, And so it's all about these accomplishments. And so now the three will, they set their goals based on what they can do and what they can accomplish. So it's very measured. It's not like, you know what, I'm going to become like Michael Jordan and just go for it. Like they'll do that if they know they're the kind of person that actually could accomplish that. So they're very measured on the goals they're going to achieve because their greatest fear is failing. Now, once they've set the goal, then they kind of backtrack with a list of um, all the things that need to happen to make sure that that actually occurs. Does that sound here's accurate? my Here's my 10-page document with my <laughs> 2023 goals yep, that I've been go. working on since early November. So yeah, now, three all day, three now, all day. Now, all of those, are are any of those like out of reach, not possibilities? You probably could fail at them. I think, no, I mean, I'm now going, because I feel like I've tried so many goals in my life, I no longer do the thing where I go, I read five books next year, 50. I go, what's 10% more than 50? I'll shoot for 55. I'll be pleasantly surprised if I do 60, but I'm not doing the thing that people do where they they hear one this measured. It's this measured ability to continue to excel. Yeah. But not so lofty that you're going to reach that point where you're feeling like a failure and you have to like spin yourself out of control. No, no. I'm, and it's going to be based on like setting myself up for success because right. I've seen, again, like coaching people in goals. I've seen 10,000 people go, I'm going to run an Ironman tomorrow. And I always <laughs> go, well, have you ever done a 5K or a 10K or a K, like a single K? <laughs> have you gotten like, off the couch? <laughs> yeah. But like we have this, at least when it comes to goals and productivity and performance, this kind of like- yeah mentality of go go hard or go home or like we say garbage things online like sometimes you have to grow wings on the way down you have to jump first like that's never how gravity works like (laughs) gravity doesn't work that way so i yeah i'm way more measured so maybe three i feel like i'm very feeling very three yeah because and like i said the sevens their defensive mechanism is reframing and they're always in this positive oriented thinking. So again, if failure comes up, they're going to reframe that it's not a failure. But as a if seven is in your tri-type, which we can't get into it, but that would mean that it's it's a part of you that pops up often. What that means is that you would be a three that has goals and you're going to accomplish it and you have a list and you're gonna, you know, fulfill these lists in a measured way. But the seven's going to bring a lot of affirmation and fun and probably spontaneity to that three part of your heart. So the the three and the seven will just look a lot more positive, go-getter, fun, and obviously funny um, in the way that they go about it. Whereas if you had three and let's say five was in your tri-type, that's a whole different kind of three, right? We'll be back after a quick break. Moms, it's here. Registration is open for Enneagram for Moms cohort. Yes, from May 6th to May 13th, you can grab your spot to be in one of the cohorts with moms of the same Enneagram type, plus with a certified Enneagram coach leading the way. Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing to be with like-minded moms who really understand what it's like to be on your journey as a mom? 
from your type? Yes, it will feel so validating, reassuring, affirming, encouraging. You don't have to mom alone anymore. Go to yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts to grab your spot today because there's only 25 spots available for each cohort. Now we have a cohort for all nine types in the daytime and one in the evening. But when the spots are filled up, they're gone. So grab your spot today at yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts. The groups start the week of June 10th and go until the week of July 29th. There are 90 minute sessions and there's eight of them. Plus you'll get a free Facebook group community where you can continue the conversation with one another. Join today. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. complete sense. So three so, all day. That's what I'm believing. So, so John, I mean, you've been here in Nashville, and at some point in time, someone told us that there are more Google searches about the Enneagram in Nashville than there is in any other city. Yeah, I it, believe it, it. It became that popular in yep. 2019. So, but, so you've been around the crazy of the Enneagram <laughs> world the and how people have used the Enneagram. I mean, what's been your experience of being in Nashville where the Enneagram is so popular? Well, yeah, I think they search for it as much as they search for influencer hats. Those flat brim <laughs> hats that like 90% of people yes. think they can wear and only 10% can. Dude, yeah. the average head does not look good in that hat. Like hat <laughs> salesmen are lying to so many people in this yes. city. Going, and they're making That's a great hat. Yeah, you look like a character from Yellowstone. That's a good look. It's not a good look, dude. There's only like two men that can wear hats. It's Justin Timberlake and like Mr. Peanut. And so like for me, I've seen so many people where I laugh about Enneagram sometimes, and you and I have talked about this before, is I think some people use it as a quick chance to talk about themselves while still looking interested in you. So they go, what's your type? They don't care about your type. They just want you to go, what's your type? So they can go, I'm going to tell you the 72 things I learned about eight. And so like sometimes I think people use Enneagram as a chance to go, I'd like to talk about myself for the next hour under the guise of being curious if you're a two. But as soon yeah. as you say your number, I'm going to tell you like the deepest things ever. That's yes. the, the first thing I think is funny. And then the second is when I'll say to somebody, well, where did it come from? And they'll go, oh, it's desert wisdom. It's ancient desert wisdom. And I'll go, oh, well, let me just accept that then. No year, no background. Just like if I said, if somebody said to you, here's some medicine and you said, well, how is it developed? And you're like, it's from the desert. Don't ask questions. Like stop right. being Don't snowed. ask questions. Let's Don't go. be judgy. It's from a cave. Yeah. Like Thomas Merton loved it. Like, and you just go, you're confusing me with your fuzziness. You, so you don't I hear that about the about Amazon that. though. I mean, there, there's wisdom that comes from the desert. Some maybe sometimes there's mountains, but there's you don't less hear wet wisdom. There's less. <laughs> yeah, there, that's right. It's got to be very dry, that's and so you don't hear about the Amazon fathers. You hear about the desert yeah. fathers. Yeah. Oh, you're right. There's less river wisdom. I think you're onto something. So yeah. maybe there needs to be a book like the Enneagram River. Like, <laughs> yeah, you got, like put that together. Nobody's cornered that into. No like, one's that cornered that. No one's cornered. Yeah. The, the Our literary ag agents writing notes right now. The <laughs> <laughs> There's no marsh wisdom. Nobody's like, I got this from the marshes. Oh, like, no, absolutely no. not. Or the bayous. <laughs> yeah, the bayous. I don't know. I could see some wisdom coming from there. Cajun just kinda, wisdom. Cajun, Cajun wisdom. Cajun wisdom. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, that would be really. Gator-based. A lot of gator wisdom. That would be fun. <laughs> that would be super fun. Well, hey, so let's dive into the topic for yeah, the day. Sure. And uh, now, I love this. Now, I'm not sure how many people read dedications. But I saw the dedication to your book <laughs> yeah. and just thought, like, oh, have I, I have heard that from my wife so often. But the dedication to this book is, John, I think you might be overthinking this, Jenny Acuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She said that a million times. I mean, yeah. I, what does that, what does that overthinking look like for you? Okay, so a specific example would be somebody goes, hey, let's go to a new restaurant in the Gulch or WeHo or like super down uptown Gulch town. Like we, we're just making up areas of Nashville at I this know. point by yes. jamming words together. And <laughs> yeah. you go, where is that? And they're like, it's upper Germantown, Gulch town. And you're like, I don't know what that means. But say somebody goes, let's go to a new restaurant. I immediately go, what's the parking like? Like, do they have, like, is it street parking? Is it valet? Is it one of those hipster restaurants where you can seat a hundred and park two? Like, would they have a tiny little part? Like, is it going to be a thousand dollars? Like, what's the parking like? And somebody will say to me, 
while you're really overthinking the parking. You didn't ask a single question about the, <laughs> about food, the food, the <laughs> chef, like what day we're going to go. You really went all in on parking. So what, what is it about the parking that really gets you going? For me, it's I have this vision in my head of I'm trying to parallel park and there's like 50 people in bandstands watching me fail at parallel parking. <laughs> and like, and so what I do to offset that is I'll park at the first spot I see and then walk like two miles. And my wife will point out spots that were closer as we get to the restaurant. She's like, so look funny. at that spot. Look at that spot. Look at that spot. I, I park like it's the last spot that will ever exist. Or as if I've been to a restaurant once and there was no parking and we just had to go home. Like yeah. every restaurant I've gone to, I've been able to park and also eat. Like it's worked out. Yes. So that's a really small example. But here's what's so funny about that is you could potentially also hey, think about- Hey, this is not about me. This oh, yeah. is about John. I know. We're wrapping it up with Enneagram. <laughs> so you as a six could also worry about parking, but what would you be thinking about it? Uh, Yeah, I'm not- would there even be a parking space? Yeah, I, there's something about missing out on a better parking space for me. Ah, okay. So I'm I'm trying to get as close as possible. But when we go to things downtown, I, I am very, like I, I have, I've already planned in advance. I Like I know where I parked before. And so I've got a go-to spot that I can get to. Right. So, so the reason why I'm bringing that up is just as a six, you're you're thinking more strategically and planning. Oh, sure. He's thinking about failing and, and others well, being Beth, exposed. Well, let's just walk the wheel on I know. each type But parks. I just think that's, so, that's why it's so funny, especially him kind of like in my sure. three or a seven. The seven would have been like, yeah, let's go for it. And like, Who look at him working Never, never. Like, <laughs> I think I learned as a child, probably through trauma, that humor was a great way to present. And I just became a seven as a performance sure, art. Yeah. And now as I'm older and mature and successful enough to be who I am, that's just funny. But I'm like, oh, maybe I like to achieve. Like, maybe I like to accomplish. Yeah. But yep. another example that your listeners can probably relate to of overthinking is if you've ever told yourself an elaborate story about why somebody didn't text you back. So mm. you texted them, you waited yep. an hour, two hours, they didn't respond or worse, they sent the bubbles and pulled the bubbles back, or you reread a sent email. So that you sent the email an hour ago, a day ago, a week ago, maybe you went to your sent email folder. There's nothing you can do. That thing is gone yes. and you reread it. Third is if you've ever self-edited an idea before you even wrote it down. Before yep. you even gave it 30 seconds of oxygen on a piece of paper or mm -hmm. in your laptop, you said, somebody smarter has done that. That's not, that's not worthwhile. And I just think about all the business ideas, ideas for art, cures for diseases we've lost because somebody overthought yeah. before yeah. they captured it. So those are three easy examples. Yeah. Well, the, the <clears throat> metaphor of soundtracks, I, I mm. it immediately gravitated to me. I remember uh, years ago hearing a friend, something had happened in her life and she was telling someone else about it. And he said, wow, you've put a lot of time in writing that script. Mm. Yeah. So where she had written, and this was probably, you know, the next episode in the no new Netflix series, because it's the same uh, beliefs, it's the same outcomes that we write in our heads. And yeah. it, it's a soundtrack. Now, as a type six, I'm always thinking about something. I remember when we were looking at the house that we were in now, mm -hmm. uh, we got onto the highway <laughs> and Beth said, hey, I'm just curious, what have you been thinking about since we got on the highway? Yeah. And I made the mistake of telling her <laughs> as if she could handle it. And I told her, and you were upset. I was so overwhelmed. I mean, like we had only been on the highway maybe two miles. And like he gave me this monologue for like five minutes of like all the things like I, that probably all the things I would have thought in like a whole day. That's amazing. <laughs> so John, I, so I'm a six, John. Beth's a nine. And that is just, I, I'm going down the road at a high speed she's slowing down in her little fiat but yep. uh, that's been the dynamic for us but it i i will say you know the the idea of soundtracks and thinking that there is this ongoing narrative of beliefs values um that of how we anticipate things are supposed to turn out for yeah. us that are actually getting in the way so what led you to think about this the concept of mm -hmm. sound uh, soundtracks as your kind of driving metaphor well, I, I always look for things in my own life that I want to change. And then I see if other people want to change them too. 
So I'm an overthinker. Like the, the dedication was a joke, but it was also true. So the way I write books is I find something I'm deeply passionately connected to, something mm-hmm. I want to change. I see if other people need it. So me and this PhD, Mike Peasley, who's a professor in Nashville, asked 10,000 people if they struggle with overthinking. 99.5% of them said yes. So that's a huge audience and a huge need. And then I look for, can I fit in the marketplace? Mm-hmm. Is there a spot for me? So I looked at all these resources and realized so many of them were like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop thinking. And one, that's impossible. Like I love meditation, yoga, whatever. That's 10 minutes of your day. That's 30 minutes. What about the other 23 and a half hours? And number two, we were designed to think. It's a tremendous yeah. gift. Mm-hmm. Like I always say, every Blue Jay has built the same nest that every Blue Jay has built. There's never been a Blue Jay that was like, I'm going to do a townhouse with like steel instead. I'm going to do a log cabin. But we as humans have this amazing gift to think. And so what if I could figure out some simple ways to make all this thought work for me, not against me? That's how I started to think about it. And then the metaphor soundtracks, I was just, I'm always captivated by the idea that the soundtrack is playing in the background and we often don't notice it, but it has the power to change the entire moment. And so that's how I think about thoughts. I think about what did I add to that conversation? I added some thoughts to that, maybe before I even got there, that Mm -hmm. changed that conversation. I didn't know I had these soundtracks on repeat. And then probably living in a musical city, like we both have the benefit of living into, music is in, music's in the water. Um, And so a soundtrack, a musical metaphor really stuck out to me as, well, I haven't seen somebody do this. I think it's really sticky. Um, I consider my job to be a handle maker. I put handles on ideas so that people mm-hmm. can take them into their lives. Yep. We have enough ideas. We don't have handles to carry them. That's why the Enneagram works so well. The Enneagram yep. is an amazing set of handles. And so that's what soundtracks felt like me too, is it was a really yeah. easy handle. That's great. Well, I, I think about, uh, so when we go to downtown Franklin, uh, for a season, there was uh, a child. No, he was played the violin mm-hmm. on the same corner in downtown Franklin. And when we would go to downtown Franklin, we'd roll down the windows, even if we were just driving through to our and house. And even if it was cold. Even if it was cold. <laughs> why? Because it brought some kind of meaning to it. Yeah. Um, and it, so the, the power of soundtrack is such a powerful metaphor. I, I love this quote that you, you wrote. He said, if you listen to any thought long enough, it becomes part of your personal playlist. Mm. And I mean, even to consider the concept that we have a playlist, mm-hmm. certain beliefs and narratives that come up repeatedly for our lives. Yeah. And, we, and the one way that the Enneagram is helpful in that sense is that there's a, there's a certain level of predictability based right. upon Enneagram type. Um, so, Bethy, why don't you walk us through, as you, you think about a soundtrack, what would be, just walk the wheel uh, quickly, what would be a soundtrack for each type? Yeah, but if I can just kind of back up, I just want to preface that, you know, that's why the Enneagram is so dynamic because I can literally, like, even just you talking about parking, like, I could have guessed what the reason was, but I wanted to hear it from you. But I knew it had to do more with success, failure, image, those kinds of things because that's the way the soundtracks work in a type three. And so... Now, a lot of times what's unfortunate is that people, when they find out, let's say, their negative soundtracks, because there's positive soundtracks too, which I'm sure we'll get into, but when they when they hear about their negative soundtracks, what they usually do as a human is they start to condemn, put themselves down, feel guilty, and that just spirals it into more soundtracks that are negative versus just seeing it as, you know what? Yeah, as a type nine, I have these soundtracks and they're going to probably be with me for the rest of my life. But it doesn't have to derail me. It doesn't have to get me off track. I can notice when they pop up and I can then make the choice if I'm going to believe it or if I'm going to bring in a better soundtrack that actually will help me to get you know where I want to go and, and live the life that I you know want to live in a healthier way. So I think that's what our goal is with uh, using the Enneagram is to point out, yeah, I know some of these things that we say aren't fun and they kind of sting at first, but it's not intended to to stay there. It's not mm. intended to continue to hurt. It's so that you feel it like that rumble strip on the highway, that this is your alert system. Like when you start thinking in these patterns, you need to realize that that's a negative soundtrack that's not true. And now you need to go find the truth soundtracks and bring those into your life. So I'll go through the nine types. And these are just portions of soundtracks, right? So 
when we think of a soundtrack like a movie, there's lots of music in a soundtrack, but these are just like snippets of the soundtrack. So, <clears throat> so for type one, they're going to be thinking, since I can't be wrong, bad, or make mistakes, I need to constantly focus on what needs to be fixed, perfected, and corrected. The type two soundtrack might be, since it's selfish of me to take care of my own needs and emotions, I will now focus solely and assist others on their needs and emotions. The type three might think, well, since failure or incompetency is not a possibility, I'm going to fixate on my to-do list to ensure that I accomplish and achieve all the goals that I've set for myself. The type four soundtrack might be something like, since I feel there is something missing or flawed within me, I must continue to dive within myself to understand myself fully and my authentic trueness so I can bring that to bear for others to see and understand. Now the type fives might, their soundtrack might sound like, since I fear my energy reserves and material resources will be completely depleted, I, <clears throat> and that I'm not gonna have enough knowledge to be competent, I'm gonna fixate on minimizing what I need and my interaction with, with others while also absorbing all the knowledge possible to feel capable and competent. Now the type six might say in their mind, since my mind is constantly thinking, as we heard Jeff earlier, <laughs> is constantly thinking of all the possible outcomes, I can't trust my own thoughts. Therefore, I must constantly find guidance and support from others that I trust, which is tricky because I have a difficulty trusting others, which keeps my mind in a constant state of apprehension and overthinking. Type seven, they might have the soundtrack of, since I don't trust that others can help me to come through with complete satisfaction and contentment, I'm gonna have to fixate on forging my own path by constantly thinking of the next best thing and ensure that I will find joy and fulfillment that I desperately crave. And then type eight soundtrack might be, since people are not trustworthy and they might blindside me or portray me, I must be vigilant in protecting myself and those closest to me. And then us type nines, we might be thinking, well, since I shouldn't assert myself and my presence and voice don't really matter, I'm going to fixate solely on the desires and needs and wants of others to ensure that I can make them happy. Now, John, one of the profound insights that you had that I, I, I found so helpful for myself is a negative or unhealthy soundtrack can't produce a healthy soundtrack. It, it almost, we, we find the, the same fear, the same result each time that we believe. Uh, the, one of the quotes that I wrote down was, broken soundtracks are one of the most persuasive, persuasive forms of fear because everything you listen to, one, it gets easier to believe in it the next time. Hmm. Why don't you talk about this, the, the cyclical ideas of how soundtracks actually work whenever we start walking down that path again? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I often work with, say, an executive who's 42, and they're, give, they're given a new opportunity at a big job to step into leadership, and they're pulling back, or even worse, they're self-sabotaging. And if you pull the thread, because I, I think it's always healthy to ask the thought behind the thought behind the thought, you often find that at 15, at 16, at 18, at 21, somebody in authority, a teacher, a parent, a professor said, you're not a natural leader. And they didn't know they were going to start listening to that at 17. But by the time I interact with them, they've listened to that song, that soundtrack for 20 years. So now even just the hint of a leadership opportunity, even if they're qualified, even if everybody around them sees that ability, fires off that soundtrack because they've listened to it so often. It's kind of like if you listen to your favorite song for 20 years in a row, you know every lyric of, you know, the journey song, you know, every lyric of this. And so they get easier and easier and easier for you to believe. And they fire off in more and more situations where it might've been tied to one type of situation, but you start believing it in other situations too. And so that's, that's that persuasive where, and then the other thing is I sometimes will say, the most persuasive person you've ever met is yourself. Like every bad decision I've ever made is because I first talked myself into it. Like, so when somebody says the only one standing in your way is you, I go, I know that guy is amazing. He's so good at convincing me to make, you know? And so I think that's part of it too. And I, you know, one of the things I say is that we tend to believe our thoughts are true because they're delivered in the voice we're most familiar with our own. 
every thought you have is delivered in your voice and it's the voice you've heard more than any other in your life. So we tend to go, well, that must be true. Even when your thoughts haven't been accurate, because we've all had an experience where your thoughts said that person's mad at you. They're so disappointed. That thing you said at the party, they're still thinking about it. You go and spend time with the person. They have no idea what you're talking about. They're not mad at all. And you never go back to your thought and go, Hey, you got me this time. You were, you were kind of wrong. So next time I'm not going to trust you as quick as I did this time. We never go back and correct the thought. So we just continue to push that forward because we don't take the time to go, wait a second. I don't think all my thoughts are true. What do I do with that? And I think that's a really healthy exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually, in our book, Becoming Us, the first chapter, it talks about how we assume incorrectly other people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And we actually put a a word to it called a suicide because we yeah. assume and it actually hurts and destroys relationships. And I would say from an Enneagram perspective, we we do that from our own Enneagram viewpoint, right? So, um, you know, for me, I might be thinking people are upset with me, disappointed with me because I didn't make them happy. Whereas it could be a type eight that I'm talking to and they're just glad I said it outright, you know, and, and yeah. I was assertive, but I'm, I'm in scared because, oh no, like I, I actually said it and now they're probably mad at me because I didn't give in to their wishes. And like, no, I'm assuming incorrectly and it's hurting that relationship and I'm playing my own soundtrack versus taking a step out of my own way of thinking and trying to picture what would that person actually, how, how would it land on them in a different way? Well, and I, I think, think that's, that's important. Even my, I love that word, a suicide. I think that's so great. But for me, like the three, seven, if I have a failure and I, and I just go, oh my gosh, this is such a terrible failure. And then I tell that to a seven, the seven might go, what are you talking about? Like we learned so much that was, we had fun. Like life yeah. is messy yes. and I'm going, they're going to be so furious. Like this was the end of the world. Yes. This is such a big deal. And they've interpreted it differently. So I think, I think that's another one of the things I do like about the Enneagram is that it gives you that pause to go, okay, but wait, how, you know, my wife's a five. How is she going to interpret this differently than I am as, yeah. as a three? Um, how is, you know, how, how is she going to see this? And I think that's really healthy. Yeah. I, I have to be honest. This is just a cursory observation. I don't know if I've ever heard of a three, five couple type. Do we really? We're the first. Yeah, I'm trying to think. <laughs> so, John, we we with our marriage platform, we had created a course for all 45 couple types, and which can I, be found at becoming a <laughs> oh, Gosh, that wasn't intended to be a pitch. <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, babies need shoes. You guys, you're in a well, new I mean, people, house. People are going to be like, but I, they're going to be like, wait. You have a course for our couple type. And so I just yeah. told them where so, to get it. But it, it is interesting to think. So now whenever we think about that course, you're, you're going to be the image in our mind. You and Jenny. Yeah. yeah. Three and five. First one. It. What's yeah. the most prone to divorce? Hit me up. Uh, uh, it, well, we, we don't, well, we yeah. don't have the statistics on that. But most people say, well, what is the best or worst combination? And yeah. And we're not just trying to like sweep over this. But it's truly the healthiest of types are mm -hmm. the greatest couple type combinations yeah. and honestly the worst, like the unhealthiest are the worst. Yeah. So it yeah. really, cause you know, you know, we've seen couple types that are two eights and they're doing fantastic. And we've seen two nines and they're, I mean, they're both catatonic. Powerful, but yeah. Right? They're, they're <laughs> but you would think, you think, oh, two nines, yeah. they're so like accommodating to each other. Well, if they're both unhealthy and catatonic, it doesn't matter. Doesn't they're, matter. they're yeah. not going to yeah. be a great couple. So, and that's really true. Um, yeah. So, but I, but we could, if you want, we could say the three and the five couple type are the winners. I that. think number one, number one. I would, okay, that's what I was trying to go for. Yes, I would, yes. There we go. There we go. I'm glad you saw that through that yes. as, a nine. as a nine. You were able to tell, see what I needed. I made you happy. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> that's great. Well, where I'd like to spend the, the rest of our time together is talking through uh, these three words about, okay, mm -hmm. we all are overthinking. We've got certain patterns, soundtracks. You know, one thing I was thinking of too is, uh, the core weakness for each Enneagram type, this unhealthy belief or behavioral way of uh, that we bring to all of our relationships mm -hmm. that it comes out of certain beliefs that we have. Yeah. Um, and there's a core weakness for each Enneagram type. But use three words, and then we'll just break them down on how we actually do this. So you talked about at the end of Chapter 1, retiring your broken soundtracks, replacing them with new ones, mm -hmm. and repeat them until they're as automatic as the old ones. So I thought it would just break it down because as you break it down through the book, it, it becomes incredibly helpful. So, and it's surprising too um, that it, it's not just replace a thought, 
in in super easy terms, they're involving the totality of your humanity. So let's talk about one, uh, retiring your broken soundtracks. And the first thing that came to mind in just working with people is, you know, how do you even identify that there's a broken soundtrack? Oh, it's the easiest thing in the world. I can answer this. It is. It is. I like so. If every listener wants to do a thirty-second activity, I can automatically help them identify a broken soundtrack. All you do is you write down a goal. So you write down a desire, a hope, a dream. So you write down, I want to start a podcast. I want to lose ten pounds. I want to write a book. I want to move to Colorado. I want to date my spouse. Whatever. Write it down and then listen to your first thoughts. Listen to the thoughts that follow that goal. Listen to your reaction because every reaction is an education. It's educating you about what your thoughts are saying. So if your thoughts are, you should do that. Like, Jeff, you're the most qualified for that. You're going to do, it's finally time. We've been waiting for you to do that. People are going to love that. Amazing. Those are positive soundtracks. If though they're, who are you to do that? You think that'll work this time? It hasn't worked 10 times before. You're not equipped to do that. You can't do that. It's a negative soundtrack. And fear is funny. I always say fear argues both sides of the coin because when you're in your 20s and 30s, fear will say you're too young. You're not wise enough. You don't have the maturity. Nobody will listen to you. Nobody will follow you. But then you hit your 40s, 50s, and 60s and fear goes, it's too late. You missed your shot. Like you're too old. And you want to say to fear, when I was at the perfect age to do this is if fear will go, there were 10 minutes when you were 32. Um, it would have been, it was a Tuesday in October. It would have been amazing. So that's the easiest, fastest way to discover do I have broken soundtracks to name a change you want to make in your life and then listen to your thoughts? Yeah. Now, what's interesting though, is that um, now in our Enneagram experience in coaching people, um, some people will write out that goal and have a positive response to it. Mm -hmm. This is achievable. We can do this. And it's, it's an assumption that it is positive, but some of those, what, what types might look at a goal but be unrealistic about the goal that it comes out positive. Well, the sevens for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and the eights, um, I think the threes, but they would be a little bit more measured. They would be, they'd be positive and optimistic about it, but they're not going to reach too lofty. Mm -hmm. Um, because don't you think a four, like a four definitely, right? Yeah. Yeah. Four could. Yeah. It, it depends on, cause they're very idealistic of, they, it's like they know what real beauty or the ideal version of something could be. Mm -hmm. um, and so if they're thinking that it's obtainable, they will be positive about it. But if they think it's unattainable, which could go either way, depending on what it is, they might then get more pessimistic about it. Um, yeah. I mean, a, a but two a nine, could, I, I think a two a nine could just do gets it idealistic, be, like, because oh, they, they could do it. They could think they can serve and take care of everybody. But this, John, this is one of the other insights of the book, is that you actually give three questions that evaluate uh, each of these beliefs, these soundtracks. Yeah, one, is it true? Is it helpful? And is it kind? Mm -hmm. Why don't you elaborate more? Because then this applies for each Enneagram type, just taking any belief or thought pattern that comes up of asking yourself these three questions. Yeah, yeah that was, somebody asked me, what was the biggest surprise for me writing the book? The surprise was how many of my thoughts weren't true, helpful, or kind. And how many of my sentences had you idiot at the, as the punctuation. And I, I cleaned that up for you guys. Cause it's, there's Jesus, Jesus is on the podcast. Um, but so the questions are what I call Trojan horse questions. They're simple. They're obvious words. We're all familiar with these words, but if you'll sit with them, you'll learn something real about yourself. First question. Is it true? Is the story I'm telling myself about myself true? Is the story I'm telling myself about this situation, this opportunity, this failure, this win, is it true? One of the greatest mistakes you can make is assuming all your thoughts are true. Second question, is it helpful? When I think this again and again and again, does it move me forward or does it pull me back? Now, why do we have to ask more than one question? Because there's some things in life that are true, but they're not helpful. I'll give you an example. So we wrote a teen version of soundtracks called Your New Playlist because so many parents came out of the woodwork and said, if I could have known how to choose and change my thoughts as a teenager, would have changed my whole life. So my two teenage daughters wrote a teen version. And one of the stories is about my youngest daughter failing a biology test. She bombed a biology test and a month later had another test. And that night before the test, she was telling herself, remember you failed the last one, you failed the last one, you could fail this one, you failed the last one. Is it true she failed the last one? It is. It's 100% true. 
Is it helpful the night before the test to tell herself that a hundred times before the next test? Of course not. And we said, if a friend texted you a hundred times the night before a test and said, just wanted to remind you, you failed the last one. Just wanted to remind you, you feel like that wouldn't be a friend. That'd be a monster. So some things in life are true, but they're not helpful. Every employee I talk to right now says it's so hard to hire people. It's impossible to hire people, impossible to hire people. That's true. It's not helpful to have that soundtrack in your company culture. Third question, is it kind? Would I say it to a friend? If I said it to a friend, would they still want to be my friend? And there's this big study from Google about psychological safety and the value of psychological safety. So there's all this real science behind kindness that's just kind of entering the marketplace. And so those are the questions that I always tell people, if you can't say yes to, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it kind? It's probably a broken soundtrack that you need to retire because it's not something you're meant to be listening to. It is interesting. That, that does remind me, I, I had done some training with Dan Allender, and one of the dynamics that he talks about our concepts is other-centered contempt and self-contempt. And the idea being that I, I have contempt for myself that eventually may have the dynamic of b- having contempt for others because I assume they believe the same things about me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm literally projecting the belief on other people and but I, I love the idea of what is it? What would it look like for you for us to be kind to ourselves? Mm. Who was it? Who's the Nashville guy that wrote the song about being kind to ourselves? Was that an Andrew Peterson song? It's, it sounds like that could be in his wheelhouse. I don't. Oh know, maybe. man, yeah. But I think there's an epidemic of self-loathing right now for a number of reasons. Like there's a lot of people in the productivity space where it's about conquering yourself and like. You've got to conquer the bad parts of yourself. You've got to kind of beat Mm -hmm. this monster down versus going, I wonder what gifts I have. I wonder what would happen if I remove some of the chains from this this ability I have versus I've got to stay one step ahead of myself. And like productivity can get really unhealthy when it becomes about trying to conquer yourself and trying to detach from the things you desire and all these things that ultimately are end in self-loathing if you're not Mm -hmm. careful. Yeah. Well, so first of all, just uh, retire broken broken soundtracks, yep. identify them, just write down a goal, see what comes up, and then evaluate those uh, responses that you have internally by three questions: Is it true? Is it helpful? And is it kind? Well, and the so, other thing is the other thing is just have self awareness. Self awareness is just overhearing yourself. So yeah. when you're in a situation, so I was, you know, a situation comes to mind. We're at somebody's 25th wedding anniversary and there was probably 20 of us in this little small living room. And the, uh, the mother of this couple had put together this amazing letter and she was reading it. And I felt so uncomfortable. Like I felt like, oh, say something sarcastic, ruin this whole moment. <laughs> and I was like, and I was, I had the wherewithal to go. I don't think that's helpful, dude. I don't think that's going to be helpful to this. Like, and I think I need to workshop a little bit why real honest emotional moments make me want to detonate them with sarcasm. Yeah. Like, we should probably do some work on that question. So I think having some self-awareness, overhearing yourself in situations can be really valuable when it comes to how do I retire? Yeah. yeah. Well, and well, when we look at the Enneagram and it kind of went with the um, soundtracks that I listed earlier, is that there's what we call at uh, yearning gram coach, the interpreted childhood message. And these are the false messages that really are the soundtracks in our mind. Now, a lot of times we'll say, oh, well, that's because a parent or a teacher said it. It's like, no, they're literally like your soundtracks. And either they were directly said or you interpreted circumstances based off of that already ingrained soundtrack. So the type one is it's not okay to make mistakes. The type two is it's not okay to have your own needs. Type three is it's not okay to have my own identity or my emotions. Type four is that it's not okay to be too much or not enough. The type five is it's not okay to be too comfortable in the world. Type six is it's not okay to trust myself. Type seven is it's not okay to depend on anyone for anything. Mm -hmm. Type eight is not okay to trust anyone. And type nine, it's not okay to assert yourself. And so <clears throat> you're like a fun party game. Like you just <laughs> yeah, take, a, take a scenario and then you just walk the wheel with the Enneagram. Like, yeah, you really rattled that off. That was great. That was <laughs> fantastic. I, I, it is weird. It, it's not for everything, right? I don't have that. I don't have all oh, those things for everything uh, else well, in the world, yeah, but maybe you, the Enneagram. Enough. You've got enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's important is 
a lot of times people will sit around and maybe blame a person or circumstance or situation and because in their mind, see that person said or did this, and it may not have been their intentions. So for me, you know, my thought, it's not okay to assert yourself, comes from a very specific story of mine as a child that this person was embarrassed that I had done something that actually was, you know, a pretty good idea for a five-year-old, but it was embarrassing to them. And they, you know, said, hey, we can't do that. And so from, I love how you're telling the story right now. <laughs> yeah, you're, you you're protecting her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, as a five-year-old, my first thought was I should never have asserted myself. I thought it was a great idea, but never will I do that again because I upset that person. And and that is a battle to, to this, this day. day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why it took me until I was 40 to start Urinogram Coach. Um because I thought that person was giving me the message, don't assert yourself. That is not what the person was trying to say at all. That would crush them if they thought. They certainly that, weren't saying for the next 35 years, I need you. <laughs> right. At least, yeah. Maybe, this is now a maybe, law. This is a law for you. I need to, like, yeah. But, but it goes to, and the reason why I brought that up is because like for you as a type three, the, the point of you wanting to, to have some sarcasm in that moment well, the three, it's like, I can't have my own identity or authentic emotions. And so like in this moment, there's these authentic emotions that feel awkward and weird. And like, and so the seven part of you is like, hey, let's like, let's bring some fun in here. Let's like, you know, do something different because that's so hard. But is it true? It's not true. I can assert myself. I, I do have a presence and a voice and, and gifts and talents that I can assert my, you know, presence in the world. And so we have to like you were saying, retire those faults. We have to first know what they are. Yeah. Then we have to retire and then replace them. So now I have to replace on a daily basis. This is important. This isn't just like a one and done. I wish it was. I wish it was. Mm. But on a daily basis, I am fighting as a type nine that my presence doesn't matter, that I shouldn't assert myself. And on a daily basis, I have to remember how God created me and uh, what he has called me to do and to show up and to show up in the way that honors him and that blesses others. And that is so, so hard. I almost have to like envision myself behind myself, giving myself a little yes. push. Well, I, I've nicknamed my se the seven part of my heart, El Macordo. Um, it was a nickname that uh, guys in a men's Bible study that I was leading uh, call it because when it would, when things would get intense, intimate, or really transparent and vulnerable, El Macordo would just drop some bomb, provocative and, bomb. and provocative bomb and just <laughs> totally kill the moment. But uh, so, yeah, that's they called me El Macordo then. Well, hey, so we've talked about identifying and retiring. Now let's talk about replacing them with a new soundtrack. Mm. So tell us about what does it look like to begin replacing some of these beliefs? Well, I mean, you're right. It is an activity. It's a it's a daily activity. And your brain is waiting to be told what to think. Like we talk about thoughts as if they're outside of us. We say she got carried away by her thoughts. He got lost in his thoughts. We're ne we've never been taught how to think. Um, you know, even though, you know, you mentioned kind of you mentioned God and, and his role in this, like we're told throughout scripture, take every thought captive. Think on what's true, what's noble, what's beautiful. If you read the Bible, thought is all through there and the value of how your thoughts are deliberate. But we have a really hard time going, oh, wait, you're saying I have permission to think a certain way and there's a process to think a certain way. So that's what you do with replace is you go, okay, if I retire these thoughts, what are the thoughts I want to have instead? And how do I make sure that I, I actually start to believe them? And so for me, I'll just pull something on my wall here's a thought that I decided I wanted to have. It says, ask for more. I wrote it on August 27th, 2020, because I found myself undervaluing my work in negotiations in this chair when I do Zoom meetings, Microsoft Teams, whatever. So I didn't come up with a complicated, that's not creative. You couldn't hear this and go, well, not everybody's a writer. We couldn't have figured out the words ask for more. But I just needed a reminder of the truth is my work has value. And that's a shortcut to remembering that. And so I put that on my wall. And then that kind of bleeds into the repeat. Like I see that every, you know, hundreds of times a day. And I, it's been up there for going on two and a half years. And so that's a lot of it is to go, okay, what are the thoughts I want instead? And I always tell people, start with other things that inspire you. I would never tell you to somebody, just sit down with a blank piece of paper and then go, 
what do I want to think? Like, that's so overwhelming. I never sit down with a blank piece of paper to write my books. Like I always bring other thoughts. So I think it's a healthy exercise to go, what are soundtracks I hear that are inspiring to me or motivating to me? I have another one on the wall that says light and easy. And I wrote that because when I was starting to write this book, I decided one of my thoughts for this book is going to be it's light and easy. Cause that's what I'm promised by Jesus. Jesus promised me that my burden is going to be light and easy. I feel a burden for this book. I'm going to think about that, repeat that, replace that over and over and over versus writers tend to go, going to the coal mine. Like one of the famous things about writing is you just, you open a vein and you bleed on the page. Oh my gosh. Like get over yourself. So like, I was like, no, 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 this book's going to be light and easy. It's going to be challenging. I'm going to put hard work into it, all of that. But I'm going to like, before I even start the project, can I imagine what a really fun book would be like? Oh man, that'd be light and easy. So then you start to dream and you go, okay, my marriage, what would be a soundtrack I'd replace? Like, oh, laughter, laughter. Like we laugh together can be a soundtrack and you write that down. So you start to kind of open up this world of thought possibility and you start to go. And again, it feels foreign at first because nobody in ninth grade has a class that says, here's how to do mindset. Like that's my goal with the Your New Playlist book is that I think teenagers should be taught mindset in the same way they're taught finances. 20 years ago, we were like, hey, here's a credit card. Good luck. Try not to wreck your life. We'll see you when you're 30 and Sally Mae owns everything. And now we go, what if in eighth grade, we taught them how to balance a checkbook or how to not go into debt? I think the same is true of, of thought, but that's what I mean by replace is that you have this fun activity. You know, Bethy, I, I, and John writes about this in the book, but I, I think it's been something that we've even uh, practiced in our marriage. Like there are times whenever we've we've really been caught up and gotten into a shame cycle. And on the only thoughts that we have that are filling our mind are some of these negative beliefs that we have about ourselves. We'll actually say to one another, hey, can I'm, I'm going to suggest that you borrow my perspective of who you are, where we'll actually just pronounce beliefs, um, gifts, uh, whatever they may be about the other person, and when I can't believe it about myself, maybe I'll believe you for this this moment. Yeah, no, I think that's that's spot on. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up is that in our new book, uh, More Than Your Number, really this is kind of what we're going through. So we talk about wounded child and beloved child. So our wounded child has these false messages. And so in the back of the book, we break down each of the nine types into bite-sized like uh, bullet points, cheat sheets. Mm -hmm. And we literally show you, like, I think it's three to five false messages that are going to, like, soundtracks that are going to run through your mind. And, but then what is the beloved child of your heart, the one that's redeemed? What is the truth messages that it can impart to that wounded child? So what are the things that we can replace that actually are specific to your Enneagram type? And I think that that is so important because the messages that John is going to struggle with or you're going to struggle with is not the same ones that I'm going to struggle with. Now, it's great to know what you guys are struggling with so I can come alongside you and support you. But to do my own internal work, I need to know. And especially us nine, sometimes we have that fog. So it's like, I don't know. What am I thinking? So this is a cheat sheet. You guys can see what your some of your core false messages, soundtracks are, and then what to replace it with. And what one other point is to go with, um, how David did this in Psalms 42. You know, mm -hmm. he said, why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. So he's he's seen there's something mm -hmm. going on inside him that he wants to retire and replace it with the hope that, that is actually true. Now, John, if you could give me a little space to be curious here. I'm a little surprised, but not really, but uh, I that a type three writes on a card, ask for more. The stereotype is threes know they're worth it because they're awesome at everything. They're confident. And they're confident in everything that they do. But underneath all of that shiny veneer is you're worth more. Yeah. Tell me about what, I mean, what, where does that come from for, for you? Well, I mean, I think part of it is I grew up um, in the church and the church doesn't have a healthy relationship with success or performance or right. money or you know, like a million things. I mean, in Nashville, I had a musician tell me if you buy a $75,000 Suburban, Christians go, good for you. That's a family car. You can get a lot of kids in there. If you buy a $75,000 BMW, they say Jesus could use that money. 
So I think part of it is my own brokenness with success, like and ignoring the parable where it's like, here's five talents. They immediately go to work. They don't go, we're going to fast for seven days. They immediately put it to work. They double it and there's a party. So I think part of it is some of my own broken soundtracks around, okay, like you should not be as successful. You should know, you know, like you should only use your talents to be a missionary. Like if you're not a missionary, it shouldn't like... So I think there's some, some of it's related to that is my yeah. own personal mm-hmm. broken soundtracks about what it means to be a successful Christian. Mm. Well, I, thanks for sharing that. Cause it, it, there are so many stereotypes that we carry mm-hmm. with numbers, but we fail to recognize the unique experience of each person uh, and the messages behind some of the stereotypes. And so uh, we're really appreciative of that. Um, Thanks for sharing that. Because even in there's a recovery meeting that I attend, and we even have a phrase in uh, the readings that says, we will become more comfortable with failure and success. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm just trying to get over failure. You mean I'm going to have to get comfortable with success too? Oh, I think success (laughs) is, I mean, look at everyone who falls that's successful. There's no, like, success is by no means an elixir to a better life. Like, it's, I think... I think there's arguments that success is as hard to ha- handle as failure. Mm. Yes. Well, so the last question is, uh, how can we repeat? So there's three things, retire, replace, and repeat. How can we repeat a new soundtrack in order for it to become an uh, as automatic as a new one? Mm. Now, for me, John, I wrote these. I've had French doors on my office, both at our last home and our new home now. And I don't remember exactly when... But I would, I had them written, these little reminders of this over that. So the that is my tendency, and I'm choosing this. As I walk into my office, I wrote it on every pane uh, of the French door. And then somebody wiped them clean. <laughs> and I've just not put them back. But was it Jesus? Those... Jesus wiped them. Was it Jesus? Was it the blood of the lamb? What was it? That's so funny you did that. Huh? Well, I I think, yeah. But but that was a way for me to kind of repeat the new soundtrack. It was as if I'm going into a place, like rather than bringing these negative beliefs with me into my office, I'm actually going to enter in with these thoughts right in front of me. Mm. Uh, What are your suggestions about how we can uh, repeat these new soundtracks? Well, I, and you know, when it comes to repeat, that's a great example. Me having a note card on my wall is an example. The reason you need to repeat, I had so many people 48 hours after the book came out say, hey, I retired, I replaced, and it's just not working. And I would say, well, the book's only existed for 48 hours, so I know you haven't had time to, to actually do it. And and one of the things I'll say, like with health goals, you see people go, the, the exercise plan is not working. I'll say, well, how long have you done? They'll say, 10 days. And I go, how long did it take you to gain the weight? They'll say 10 years. You gave the problem 10 years to develop and the solution only 10 days. It's so unkind to yourself. Never give the problem a year and the solution a week. And so that's the art of the repeat is going, it's going to take some time. There are times when a single soundtrack can change in a single moment, but a lot of times it's been there for a long time. So, you know, I love the power of a symbol, like you writing on the wall was a symbol. I always encourage people Find a symbol. And there's there's three things every good symbol needs. It needs to be personal. It needs to be connected to you. It needs to be visible. You need to be able to see it. It's not stuck in a drawer. And it needs to be simple, simple enough that it's not complicated. I'll give I'll show you one of mine. I had a book due, and you've written, written millions of books. I think you're writing a book right now, probably, because you're very busy. But there's a lot of pressure when you're gonna turn in a book. There's a lot of pressure there. And I had a family vacation coming right before a book was due. And I knew that in other times on those moments, I'd been physically present, but mentally absent. So I wrote a note on my wall that said, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. And then we went to Jackson Hole and I was present enough in that moment to notice, wow, the pine cones they have here are different than the pine cones I have in Nashville. They look so different. So I just picked up a pine cone in Jackson Hole and I brought it back. 1800 miles or whatever the distance is. And now it's on my desk because I know I'm going to be tempted to miss something else in the busyness of life. I'll be tempted. So this is now a symbol to me and it it makes sense to me for somebody else. It might not mean anything, but it's personal to me. My favorite example of those three things is the, the Nike um, live strong bracelet, which was against cancer. 
like when you met people that had them, they never said, Oh, I don't know anybody that's had cancer. I just hate disease. I have a, you know, an eczema necklace. I wear, I wear jewelry about, about diseases. They always said my uncle, my aunt, my mother had breast cancer. Second, it was visible. Nike could have made it flesh colored. They could have made it gray. They didn't, they made it bright yellow on purpose. And the third, it was simple to use. No one was confused by how a bracelet works. Nobody was like, so the arm goes in the whole part. Like I had no, idea. this is my first bracelet. This is crazy. So I think a symbol can be really powerful. And what happens is often when you read that chapter, you notice you already have a bunch. Like you go, wow, these things on my fridge are symbols. The thing on my nightstand is a symbol. The things on my shelves in my office are a symbol. So I think often tying a soundtrack, a thought to a physical symbol is a great way to learn how to repeat it again and again and again. Well, Beth, I mean, you've done that with your elephant pictures in mm-hmm. the bedroom. Yeah. So when I have an elephant picture also where I, one of my places that I work, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and it's just a reminder of the, the one that I actually probably love the most is the one that um, our director of coaching, Adam Breckenridge and his wife, Carrie gave to me. And it's um, an elephant with the herd behind her. So the matriarch mm-hmm. and just to remind me that my presence matters as the leader of your Enneagram coach that right. to show up, matters to not hide to not think less of um but to also be in community with one another and so yeah whenever i look at that one it's endearing because you know it's given to me out of love and affection and so it reminds me of that but it also reminds me no get out there do it like this Mm -hmm. is important so yeah the the, i think symbols pictures notes like you have on your your wall and the note cards um all of those things can matter i even have a little figurine that means a lot to me about something else so yeah, I think anything can mm-hmm. really shift your mind. One last meaty topic I'd like to address here uh, to close is that with some of these reminders, um, it, there's also just the lingering belief itself and all of the sacrifices or things that you, we've missed out on because we've sabotaged and walked away from. And it, so it's the idea of shame. Uh, you actually address uh, shame in the book a little bit and so like, there you are, Bethy, you've had some significant meetings on our back patio and you probably don't feel like the matriarch. You don't no. feel like, but you're looking at this image reminding you that you are, and there's a temptation, an opportunity to walk down, see this, actually this uh, token to remind me of a healthy belief is a reminder of what I don't believe. I'll never get there. Uh, John, how do you handle when it comes up with shame that these are messages that we believe for a long time? We see the um, the damage that it's done, and as we're striving for these other ones, and still shame finds its way to sneak back up. Well, I don't, I don't beat myself up for shame. Um, I don't say I failed because shame arrived. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't say I like I expect it. Like I expect, like I, I push back when people say you can become fearless. Um, and the reason I push back by that is I think at any time you do new things at new levels, there's an element of fear. I think the only way to be fearless is to never try anything new. The only way to have shame is to never have any feeling. I think shame, like there's going to be some shame involved. So the thing I often say, well, fear or shame is it gets a voice, not a vote. I'm going to listen. I'm going to learn. I'm going to process with maybe my counselor, Chip Dodd, maybe my wife, maybe a group of men that I love, whatever. It has a voice, but it doesn't get a vote in the sense that it sits at the head of the table or the back porch for Beth's example and says, no, you don't get to be assertive. Like you don't get to do that. So I, I always am, you know, in the process of going, okay, how do I do that? And then something that David Thomas, who's one of the counselors at Daystar, amazing organization in Nashville, taught me is that when it comes to shame or negative thoughts or stress or any anything we judge as negative, most people want there to be a switch. They want to find one thing that'll turn it off forever. And so they try yoga and they go, it's, it's, I did it, I did it. And then a week later, the stress comes back. Or they go, I found an Enneagram and Enneagram will solve all my problems. I'll never have to do work again. I'll never feel stressed or shame. And then like two weeks later, they go, oh my gosh. So he said, it's much better to think of life as a dial, not a switch. And when a dial gets loud and your shame dial gets turned up to 10 or 11 or 12, you have turned down techniques that help you turn down the shame, turn down the fear. And so my approach with that is less of a surprise. I'm not going to be surprised by it and feel 
it's funny. We have feelings about feelings and sometimes we feel shame about shame. And so I'm not going to feel that. I'm going to go, oh, there it is again. What are the things I do to turn it down? What are the healthy things in response? Looking at that, you guys telling each other, hey, I need you to borrow my perspective about you. That's such a great shame killer or shame dissolver, however you want to say it. And so if I can have turn down techniques, then I know when shame gets to 11, when fear gets to 11, when stress gets to 11, because life is stressful, there's shame in my past. There's going to be shame in my future. I'm not going to make all the right decisions from now, even though I've gone to counseling. So I can turn it down like a dial. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and I love that section in the book. There's a great phrase that you use. The antidote to overthinking isn't more thinking. The antidote is action. Uh, and actually, your our shame, our fear moves us. I mean, this straight from... Uh, Voice of the Heart. You mentioned Chip Dodd, who's been also a, a gift for Beth and I and our family as we. Oh, he's the blood. best, dude. He's <laughs> such, a, such a guru, dude. There's very few people I would say a guru status. Yeah. Chip Dodd is a guru. Yes, <laughs> but uh, but it moves it moves you to action, and uh, that not only is just there are thinking things that you can do. There are physical things you can do. You can engage in new ways. There's. But remember that shame and fear, they're not to be, they're, they're to be welcomed and invitations to something else. Right. And they, they don't have to be avoided, um, although it, that's our natural inclination. They actually become sure. opportunities. Well, well, that goes back to like beating yourself up about, or like conquering yourself. I'm mm -hmm. much more in a, in a space where I go, okay, you know, and, and I've heard Jerry Carbona say like the wounded soldier who thinks he's protecting you, but he isn't or the loyal mm -hmm. soldier that you go, I'm not going to come up with stronger defenses to fight that part of myself. I'm going to welcome it in for coffee and go, Hey, you started fighting for me when I was right. 14 and I didn't have all these tools and this ability. I don't need you on the wall the same way I used to need you on the wall. Thank you for your service. I need you to stop shooting yeah. everybody. Like you yes. only know one thing it's to shoot. So I need yes. you to come in here and let's have a conversation. Thank you for your service. I need you to retire because I don't need you anymore. And I, that to me feels like a much healthier approach than I just got to come up with enough techniques to keep these yes. five parts of myself locked in a closet. Yep. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, spending mm -hmm. some time with us. Uh, you've got something uh, that's launching this week and yeah. it's a, a new challenge. Tell us a little bit about it and uh, tell everybody where they need to go. Yeah, I'm a huge goal nerd. It's my favorite thing in the world to talk about goals, <laughs> obviously. So I have something called the Guaranteed Goals Challenge. It's three days where we're going to work on goals because it's January and it's just acuff.me, A-C-U-F-F.me slash challenge. And we'll have 19,000 people in the Facebook group. So it's also wow. another chance to go... You're not meant to dream alone. We talked about community a number of different ways throughout this. Everyone on one through nine needs community in a different way. And so it's a really fun community. It's 100% free. And it's my chance to do essentially three keynotes um, from my own house and help a lot of people dream the right way, the best way, the healthiest way for the rest of the year. Oh, that's great. Awesome. That's at acuff.me forward slash challenge, right? Exactly. acuff.me slash challenge. And I have a podcast. I'll have to have you guys on at some point called Ooh, All It Takes Is a Goal, which is about, guess what? It's about goals. Cause it's about <laughs> goal. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. Hey, well, if you're interested in learning more about your own Enneagram type as it relates to defeating beliefs and unhealthy patterns, be sure to head on over to myenneagramcoach.com. That's where you can find one of our 2,000 plus uh, certified coaches in over 30 different countries that are uh, ready and prepared to help you apply some of these ideas to your own life. Um, so, Bethy, why don't you go ahead and close us out? Yeah, well, thanks guys for joining us today. And remember that the Enneagram reveals your need for Jesus, not your need to work harder because it's the...